Uh, we are um, we are in our fifth week, kind of that this that middle period of our small group series that we've titled "Seek First. And uh, it's been this it's been focused uh, around this primary verse. And I'll just read it to you again. It's on the screen from Matthew, chapter six, uh, verse thirty three. And it says this. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek first his kingdom. Seek first his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. It's one of those things I always think about scripture where. Uh, so often when you just read verses, they, you know, if you're honest, like you just kind of read over them, you gloss over them, you have a general understanding, but your mind's kind of scattered and distracted. And, and sometimes, in fact, a lot of the time, in fact, let's say all the time that I go to be with Jesus, I find myself picking up scripture and I want to be a person with great intentionality who just, when they read, they read it differently as if they want to suck the marrow out of every single word that's found in the verse so that as I read it, it literally is life to my soul. So I'm going to read it differently this time. It's going to sound different, and I want you to hear it differently. And I invite you to engage Scripture differently. Here we go. Jesus comes and says, I'm going to use my best James Earl Jones voice. I'm just kidding. But it says this, seek first the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. Like you have to recognize when you read through that, you should say, well, what are the things? Right? What are the things? Like if you go through, like you should pull out these primary words. Like I read that verse, I go to myself, what things is he talking about, right? Because as I read, I should read with intentionality going, he's trying to be intentional as a purpose behind his words. And there are things that Jesus is talking about. I wonder if I can identify with them. And what it's important to know about this single verse is that when Jesus is, has all of these thousands of followers, it's important to know that the majority of them were living in some level of poverty. Not all of them, but a lot of them, right? Jerusalem had a lot of wealthy people in it, and it had a lot of disparity, a lot of poor, and it was the poor who had the space and the time and the hope and the desire to follow Jesus. Why? Because at one point in time, he fed 10,000 men, probably 10,000 women, and a probably impossible 15,000 children, all with some loaves and fishes. And Jesus looked at one point in time and said, why are you following me? I know it's because you think I'm going to feed you. Why? Because they didn't have things. They didn't. You go just a couple of verses earlier, he talks about food. He talks about shelter, and he talks about clothes. What he's talking about is saying, hey, things represent the needs of your life that you feel desperation about. And Jesus is coming and saying, hey, give yours. listen, these are priority. Those are priorities. Wouldn't you agree? What you're going to eat today and providing for your family, the roof over your head, right? The clothes you're going to wear so you're not naked walking around because that would be awkward, right? Those are important things. And Jesus is coming and saying, those are important, but in comparison to me, they pale. And if you will give yourself to me primarily and in priority and those things secondarily, I want you to know I'm a good king, a loving Lord who's for you, and I will care for and provide for all of those things in your life. And so as we come and talk about seeking first the kingdom 
The kingdom represents, we talked about, the reign and the rule of Jesus. His movement on earth to come back and say, I am the established king and ruler over all things on earth. Give the priority of your time, your energy, and all of yourself to me, and I will provide for things. And so when we begin to read through recognizing, that's a, I don't know about you, it's a really big statement. Think about how much time you give in your life to make sure that you can provide a roof and food and clothes for your children. So you're like, that's a lot, right? How much energy and time? And Jesus is saying, that's all fine and good, but seek first. My kingdom is the priority of your life. And so in this call that we're having about seeking first the priority and the preeminence, we talked for the last couple of weeks about the tension that we have about the coming of the kingdom. We said, yeah, we celebrate the kingdom of God has come, but there's a tension that we live in, right? Because there is still suffering and hardship because why? The kingdom has not yet come fully. That's the nature of how we view the kingdom. The kingdom has come, but not yet in its fullness. And because of that, then we still have tension. We said in some people's lives, we call that the great let down. Why? Because they have these high expectations of what Jesus could or maybe, in your opinion, what Jesus should be doing, but he doesn't. And that creates tension because in your life, if he's God, then why is there suffering? Why is there hardship? Why are all these tensions in life? And so we face these tensions and the great letdown. You don't call it the great letdown until something happens that greatly lets you down. And there's always something like that that happens. Maybe a few of those primary nuggets in your life. And so we've been talking about how do we handle that tension? What does it look like, right? Because we expect more of God's movement that we are getting. And we've been talking about this. And the thing I want to say this morning in this tension And this is almost unfair, but it's just like a matter-of-fact thing we have to wrestle through. The tension, we have to make a decision. Do I focus on the tension? Do I focus my primary energies on the not-yet part of the kingdom? Or do I simply accept that it's just how it is in life and then focus on the other truth that the kingdom has come and I need to begin giving my energy to it? Just saying this morning that there is a tension. And you have to begin to get to that place saying, God, I don't understand, but I accept that the kingdom has not yet come fully, that there will be tension, there will be hardship, and God, I see that, but I choose to now take, I just accept that, but focus my attention on the part of the kingdom that has come. Because the part of the kingdom that has come is this, people are saved, people are set free spiritually, people are given divine purpose in life, people will tell story after story of being supernaturally comforted by God, a peace that passes understanding, right? We see men and women, some and many who were healed miraculously, they're demonically set free from oppression, right? That God moves in power this morning. We pray for people because we believe he moves because the kingdom has come. We do nights of healing prayer. Why? Because we believe as we give ourselves in faith and confidence to Jesus and pray in faith that God moves in those moments and brings healing because the kingdom has come. 
And so what I'm getting at is this. I can spend all day frustrated that the kingdom has not yet come fully and the tension that comes with it, or I can just accept that's what it is. Jesus hasn't yet come fully. He is coming in time, and that's why death is a gift. Like Jesus implemented death. Why? Because he said, you weren't designed to live eternally in tension. My grace to you is to let you die so you could spend eternity with me in perfection. Death wasn't a curse, it was a gift. And so in that, we begin to face that tension and say, God, I accept that and now I focus on the part of your kingdom that has come. It's a journey that's more difficult than others, but it's the place we have to get to. We can't move forward in the kingdom until we begin to accept the kingdom has come, but not yet fully so. Because here's the point. What Jesus even looked at and said, hey, the tensions around food and clothing and shelter, right? Like, they're still present. I'm just saying, seek first the kingdom, and all of these things will end up becoming yours. So in this, the question we begin to answer and ask is this, what is our response then? If we're like, all right, God, I accept this tension. Now I'm going to seek, I'm going to seek first this kingdom. I'm going to take reality and say, but this part of the kingdom that has come, I'm going to begin to give myself to it. Our, listen, the question we have to ask is this. What is our response? What do we need to give ourselves to that leads to us experiencing and embracing the kingdom? The first is simply say we already named it. We read it here in Matthew 6. He says the first thing is, listen, just seek first the kingdom. Like, I don't need to spend forever on this. I've already talked about it some. But seek first. Seek first means priority and preeminence of time and of energy. I'm giving my priority to it. I'm thinking about it every single day I wake up. I'm looking to say, all right, God, today you were Lord again. Lead my life. Here are the keys to every door of importance in my life. Here's my daughter. Here's my wife. Here is my job. Here is my finances. God, here is everything. You're Lord of them. I give them. You do what you want to do with me, God. I'm leading you and following you in them, right? That's what we do. We seek first. We make him the priority in all of that. We are to intentionally every day turn our gaze and direction to to the leadership of God in every area of our lives. He is Lord and King. So rather than allowing someone or something else to sit on the throne of our hearts, right? Whether it's a hobby, a relationship, right? An addiction, money, power, sex, whatever it may be. I say, God, here, I take those off. I put you on and I seek you and seek you as the king of my heart. Seek first the kingdom. That's the first piece. But another response I want to focus on this morning is a simple yet profound verse from earlier on in Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. I'm just going to look at this one verse and kind of build off of it this morning. Jesus comes, and it's the very first thing he states in the Beatitudes, which is arguably the most important sermon that Jesus ever preached, right? Most theologians, and I would agree with them, say that every single one of Jesus' sermons from this point forward ultimately revolved around the foundation of the Beatitudes. Everything goes through the lens of what Jesus says and what he states in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7, right? He speaks and he begins here. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or if you grew up a long time ago, blessed 
are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? Blessed or blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Kurt touched on this a few weeks ago, but I want to, I want to make the argument that Jesus' first line is the foundation then for everything else he said. And we have to begin to understand blessed. We understand that word partially. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? And what does it mean for the poor in spirit? They receive the fullness of God's kingdom. All right. Let's dive into this and see what it means. The word poor here for me is the key to this verse, right? Classical Greek, this is on the screen, but in classic Greek, they define the word poor here as a person reduced to total destitution. A person reduced to total destitution. The picture was a guy crouched in a corner begging as one hand out Asked for alms, he often hid his face with the other because he was ashamed of being recognized. That's this picture, right? This picture of someone like this because they were so ashamed that they had nothing to offer, nothing of value in and of themselves. They were completely dependent on another human being. Today, World Vision, World Vision, the great mission organization, calls this type of destitution absolute poverty. I don't know if you know this or not, but there are like nine different types of, of poverty that are talked about in the socioeconomic world, right? And absolute po- poverty represents this destitution, kind of like the worst of the worst, and that's the Greek word. It's like tokelis or something like that in the Greek, and it speaks to this total destitution, absolute poverty, which World Vision defines this way. When a person, on the screen, when a person cannot afford the minimum nutrition, clothing, or shelter needs in their country. See that up there. That's basically what Jesus was getting at. People he was talking to, he was talking about the food, talking about their shelter, and talking about just the clothes on their back, right? The absolute poverty when a person cannot afford the minimum nutrition, clothing, or shelter needs in their country. In fact, let me kind of put it in context for you. In poverty language, people who are living on the streets of Atlanta that you think of as the poor don't represent destitution and absolute poverty. In fact, the people who are on the streets of every major city don't represent absolute poverty. Why? Because if they stay clean, they have about a 100 different coat closets to go to. They have actually three meals a day at soup kitchens that they can go to the Salvation Army or wherever else that they know where to go. And they have these shelters that they can sleep in at night as long as they stay clean. So they have the, they have access to those things. It's just a matter of whether or not they actually embrace them. So for example, you may want to move to a third world country and live in abject poverty like we've experienced multiple times in India. But the fact is, you can never actually be absolutely poor and live in absolute poverty. Why? Because all you have to do is make one phone call to a friend or to a loved one, and you can have a house to live in, clothes on your back, and probably money to put into your pocket, right? So that's what we're talking about here. Absolute poverty is something that the majority of us have probably never personally experienced in life, 
more than likely, unless you've traveled to a third world country, you've never actually seen it. In the States, the only place you really ultimately see it is in Appalachia, right? In Appalachia with extreme poverty there. This, but you don't see that. My point is, all I'm getting at is trying to paint a picture. Absolute poverty is something that is overwhelming. It's a person who has no ability, no relationships, and no access to get the very things they need to sustain life. I just want you to feel the weight of it. All of you have probably, you like you, you theoretically and intuitively understand it because you're all smart. You've seen things on, on television. You know, back in the day, Sally Struthers coming up, right, and just like guilting us into giving money, right? It's like we see these people, and I'm not joking about that. It's like it's a reality thing, but I've been joking about Sally, Sally Struthers. But I mean, it's like you get this dynamic of poverty. Raylan, I've been in places, we literally will drive by someone and we see a person. Like I can literally just have these images indelibly stamped in my brain of a, of a mother holding a child literally like this, putting her hands out, asking for alms. And I know her story is she's literally going to take that money, give it to a pimp, right? A poverty pimp. And she's going to get zero of it. And she's going to go back to absolute nothing. And we're like, ah, what do we do with this? And so when Paul comes in and starts talking about absolute poverty in spirit, you have to begin to put that picture and that type of language to it. Like, I I hope that you're a little bit uneasy and want to be distracted from the conversation because it doesn't make you feel comfortable. That would be a perfect win right now. Because in this, there's this intentional language that Paul is making about poverty, saying they are the ones who are absolutely helpless and at the mercy of others to care for them. So understanding poverty, it creates a... Uh, an interesting take then on this phrase, poor in spirit, as we begin to dive into this language. The spiritual poverty are those who recognize their true poverty, who lived blessed lives, right? Listen, it says those who recognize their true poverty. They live blessed lives and experience the fullness of God's kingdom, right? Because poverty speaks to need. They recognize in the kingdom I have nothing of value in and of myself, nothing to offer. I have nothing of value. All I have is just my naked, hungry self with a need for God. Poverty speaks to need. It speaks to powerlessness. It speaks to the possession of nothing. It speaks to inability to be poor in spirit. It means we recognize who we are in that nakedness and that poverty in light of who God is in his fullness. I am not strong. Only God is strong. I am not able. Only God is able. I have nothing except that which has been given to me by God. I am not deserving. Only God is deserving. I don't have power. Only God has power. Being poor in spirit is an awakening akin to the awakening Paul had in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 through 5. 
This is going to mess with you. It's going to empower you. It's going to, um, it's going to cause some wisdom to be awakened in you as we dive into the understanding of 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5 around poverty. So as I read this, I want you to recognize this is a picture in Paul's life of embracing his poverty in spirit compared to God's greatness in life. Okay, here we go. Super familiar verses. I think I talked for like 20 minutes on them like seven weeks ago. I'm sure it was profound. You should go back and listen to it. I have no idea. Here we go, verse 1. That was a joke. Here we go. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. So he's talking to the Corinthians. He's reminding them of when he came to them. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you. Here's the poverty right here. I came to you in weakness. I came to you with great fear and great trembling. Like you have fear and trembling because you don't think you have something of value. You come with fear and trembling into a moment because you're afraid you're going to be exposed as being a fraud, right? Come in this moment. Fear and trembling. My message and my preaching, they were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So let's unpack this. Like, he's coming in the moment, right? He's coming in the moment saying, man, I, I, I didn't come to you. Listen, Paul was smart. Paul was smart. Paul had been trained by the greatest teachers He was a very, very eloquent orator, a very gifted speaker, a very gifted preacher, right? He was someone who, he literally, he literally gives his like, his resume in 1 Corinthians of all the things that define who he is. And of a person of person, he was very well known, very powerful, very influential, very gifted. And so he comes in the moment though and says, all of that was poverty to me. All I wanted to do is to proclaim the power of God. Why? Well, here's something you may not know. This would be super interesting, so listen to this. This is pretty cool. Historically, it's interesting to note that Paul's greatest sermon in the book of Acts that tells of his missionary journeys is recorded in chapter 17 while he was visiting Athens, Greece. If you go back and read it, it's considered like this great orator, masterpiece of eloquence in his speaking. He proclaims the gospel in a very culturally relevant way. He shows off his gift of, uh, of mission and missiology, just going to people, proclaiming things in language and with cultural ways that they would understand, right? And he gets through his whole message and people are like just listening to him. And all of a sudden, he proclaims the resurrection from the dead. Everyone kind of just falls back in laughter, starts laughing at him, begins to walk away from him. Says a few people, says a few people listened and gave their lives to Jesus in the moment, right? And then he laughed. But here's the interesting thing. That's chapter 17 of Acts. Do you know where he went next? He went to Corinth. 
1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 through 5 is the conversation and the prayer that Paul had on his way from having a little bit of success in Athens to his next place in Corinth. And what you see here, and that theologians say, that when he got done speaking, there's a really good chance that Paul, on his journey into Corinth, looked back on his time in Athens and said, wow. I think I really missed it there. Maybe a little bit disillusioned because he just preached the sermon of his life and most everyone laughed and left and only a few people gave their lives to Jesus. We would celebrate that as a win if a few people gave their lives to Jesus. Paul didn't because he recognized the power of the gospel, lived with a greater expectation and anticipation. He knew the stories of when the disciples had proclaimed the gospel and thousands came to Christ. He's looking at the few, and I think in the moment, and most theologians agree, he was disillusioned, he was disheartened, and he realized, I think I did it wrong. I think I need to change what I do when I go into Corinth. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to embrace my poverty. I'm not going to go in the eloquence and the giftedness of my speaking. I'm not going to go in proclaiming my wisdom and my own knowledge, right? I'm not going to do anything with them except Jesus. All I'm going to do is talk about Jesus, promote Jesus, talk about the crucifixion and what it means. I'm going to go to them in weakness. I'm going to go to them with fear. I'm going to go to them with trembling. My message, I'm not going to use wise and persuasive words. I'm just going to go and make much of Jesus and demonstrate the power of God's spirit. So when they believe, I can't look at me. They'll have to look at Jesus. That sounds like a great plan. And so he did. And if you know anything about Corinth, I mean, they were a little immature, but great Things happened in Corinth, in the church of Corinth. But do you know what happened in Acts 19? He got it just right. He went to Ephesus, and it says in there that the whole province of Asia heard of the gospel. Revival broke out. People were bringing all of their idols and their books, and they were burning them in honor of their love and affection for Jesus. Why? Because Paul embraced his poverty. He embraced being poor in spirit. I have nothing to offer. All I give is my inability. I give you my weakness. I'm not going to speak well. I'm not going to communicate well. I'm not going to use wise and persuasive words. I'm just going to come and say, it's about the resurrection. Let me pray for you so I can show you what happens. Because Jesus has to move. People didn't, oh, man. I just wanted to jump on a little. I just wanted to jump on a soapbox real quick. I'm not going to do it. Nope, I'm not going to do it, Walt. There are lots of things that cause churches to grow today that have nothing to do with Jesus. You don't, listen, Jesus doesn't need fog and smoke machines to show up. Jesus doesn't need smart lights that shine all around. He doesn't need a value of excellence to thrive in some place. Jesus will do Jesus because his cross and his resurrection are excellent. And our ex- his excellence is the antithesis of our weakness. So why not make much of him and celebrate our poverty, our weakness, what Paul did. 
We see this. We see this in the context of being blessed and poor in spirit. The first principle, this is important, the foundational principle of the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 3. The first principle in speaking of the kingdom speaks to the value of poverty in our lives. Oswald Chambers, much smarter than me, says this. This is on the screen. The underlying foundation, the underlying foundation of Jesus Christ's kingdom is poverty, not possessions, not making decisions for Jesus, but having such a sense of absolute futility that we finally admit, Lord, I cannot ever begin to do it. What is the it? Anything you're really believing God for in power that only he can do, that you work hard at all day long, but just can't make and it happen and it frustrates you. It can be anything. Only Jesus and his power can bring the breakthrough, meet the needs, these supernatural pieces. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, one of those super familiar verses speaks to this in our own salvation. He says, for it is by grace, God's movement, not your own, that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not by works. So you can't boast about what you could do in your own strength. It's by grace through faith. The idea slash ideal of poverty, hear this. It is counterintuitive at best for many of us. And if honest, it feels repulsive to most of us. It is seemingly opposite to how we live our secular life. How do we live our secular life? Well, we hustle and we work and we aspire, right, to financial security on a minimal level and financial excess on a primary level. We think we've arrived if we have more than we need so that we can live comfortable. Comfort is the idol of our age. We aspire to much and many, to the idea of more, and the way we get there is through this, is in this place of, again, hard work, sacrifice, hustle. Chamber ends his, the Chambers, Oswald Chambers ends his thoughts with this. This, talking about poverty. This, this, poverty is the doorway to the kingdom. And yet it takes so long to believe that we're actually poor. The knowledge of our own poverty is what brings us to the place where Jesus Christ accomplishes his work. Remember when Jesus said and celebrated, hey, it's only in your weakness that I'm able to be strong in you. So Paul, what he did, he boasted in his weaknesses. It's counterintuitive. It's a paradox, isn't it? He says, I celebrate, celebrate how weak I am. I celebrate the people who are hurling insults at me. I, 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 I boast in the fact that people hate me because of the gospel. I, I boast in the fact that I just can't make anything happen for you in Corinth, right? Second Corinthians chapter 12 is where he talks about this. I celebrate my weakness because it's only in that, right? It's only in my poverty that Jesus is able to be strong, right? Paul said in Philippians 2, it says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He became a, became a servant. Listen, became a servant and literally died on the cross so that then God could exalt him. It's only in poverty that Jesus was exalted. 
recognizing who he was in comparison to God. Paul, I recognize how small I am compared to God in my poverty. I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to provide. I'm powerless, completely unable. God, I can't, nothing, it can't happen apart from you. So most of you know, most of you know that I'm a guy who grew up on the water. Literally, right? Lived around Lake Lanier for a long time. And I was so fortunate, right? This is one of those, it's like the, it's like the best of the world where my dad, we had a lake house. I had our own dock, right? We literally had, like when my dad bought and sold boats. So every summer we would have a really nice bass boat and a fishing boat because he just wanted to fish every day when he got home. And then he would buy a really nice ski boat. And so every single summer I had two boats at my boat dock, usually the professional tow boat and I had a fishing boat, right? And so my favorite, these are like memories, like my greatest memories Literally, it's like my parents would call and say, hey, we're this is while in college, right? We're going out of town for a couple of weeks. Can you come it's during the summer? Can you come home and take care of everything? And my first question is, can I bring my buddies home? They're like, absolutely. Fantastic. We will absolutely take care of your boats for you. And so literally every single morning, every single morning, we get up around 6 o'clock. We would like have something to eat real quick, and we would go fishing for like two hours. We'd come back, have a snack. We'd probably play some ping pong, right? We'd probably have another little snack, and then we'd take a little, like a 30-minute power nap. And then we would go out. And we would go water skiing for like six hours, nonstop, right? Might come back and grab a bite to eat, play some ping pong again. And then we'd come back, we'd park that boat, we'd eat dinner that my mom had made, put in the freezer, said, just stall out for one, for one minute on like whatever it is in the microwave, you're good to go. We'd have spaghetti, and then we'd go hop back in the fishing boat, and we'd fish to 11 p.m. And we'd go to bed at 12, right? And then we would replay the next day for two weeks straight. Someone say Amen. Man, it was the best of times. It was the best of times outside of Mary Randall, right? And so it was the best of times. But here's the thing about that. We'd have our friends come, and I'd have my, I'd have my ski boat. It's got like that 454 big block in it, man. It's like it'd rip your arms out when you pull it up. It was amazing. Here's the deal. I'd take people, like me with somebody in this room who had never water skied before. And I'd put them in the water, and I'd look at them and say, hey, it's super simple to water ski. You get your hands in the right position. You get your skis in the right position. But please recognize, in your own strength, you can never get yourself up. I don't care how hard you try. You have to lean into and trust the big 454 big block to rip you out of the water. And all your job is, is to hold on. You see, when we talk about being living in poverty, that spirit, that's it. I have nothing that I can do in my own strength to get me up and to make life happen. All I can do is look at the kingdom of God, the cross of Jesus, and his power, and his glory, and his majesty, and recognize, God, all I can do is nothing except hold on so that you can do you. That's what we're talking about. In poverty, I have nothing to offer but to come to Jesus, offer my naked self and say, God, I have nothing to offer but my allegiance to you. And he says, finally, you got out of your way and my way. Now watch what I can do. So I invite our worship team and Greg to come forward. I want to read to you. I'm going to read this twice. It's the language 
of connecting with the understanding of God as Lord and as King. Right? Grabbing hold of. We're looking at the, at the life of David. Solomon's already been born, so it's later in life, right? Here's David. He's king. He knows the Lord. He's walked with the Lord. And here's the conviction of his in First Chronicles chapter 29. I'm going to put it on the screen. You can go ahead and put it there for me, please, so you can begin to see the words of it. First Chronicles chapter 29, starting in verse 11. David is coming and speaking. Hear the conviction behind his voice of understanding his own poverty and the greatness of God. He says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness. Yours, O Lord, is the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and all that is in the earth, it's yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand, in your hand are power, and in your might. And in your hand, it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and we praise your glorious name. Verse 14, everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. Do you see the conviction of David around this? He doesn't talk about anything he's done. He just says, I, everything that we have and everything that's good that's happening, I just honor the fact it's because you're king and it's your, your Lord and it's your kingdom. It's your kingdom. I, I love that down here when it says, both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. It says, in your hand. Well, in your hand are power and might, and I love this, and in your hand it is to make great. No one can make themselves great, only God can. And it's in your hand that you give strength to all. Any strength that you have, always look at people and go, someone says, I worked hard for this, my abilities. I'm like, who gave you the abilities? Who gave you the the mental know-how to go make millions with this unique thing that you created? It wasn't you, it was God. Everything, bow down and worship. So here's what we're going to do this now. We're going to, I'm going to read this again. Here's what I'm asking you to do. Everybody, right where you are, if you're holding hands with your loved one, just unclasp. It's between you and Jesus right now. I want you to sit up straight. My words have been unimportant. I'm not going to read scripture to you devotionally. And I'm asking you to engage them. Please take your phones. They're not that important. And put them down. And I want you just to take a deep breath and then exhale the things that are distracting you. The Falcons are probably going to win or lose. Both, both are options. Don't worry about it. Focus. Now I'm going to read this devotionally. First Chronicles 29. I'm going to read it slowly. And as I read it, I want the truth of Scripture, David's words, which became the Word of God, I want them to lead you to a place of your own awareness of your poverty. Paul could not embrace poverty till he realized and took time to realize his abilities and power was getting him nowhere. He needed God's movement. Same for you. So as I pray, just ask God to awaken you to your own poverty, to his greatness awaken you truly to your spiritual poverty. Here we go. I'm going to read slowly. 
Allow these words to, this truth to wash over you. Yours alone, O Lord, is the greatness. Yours, O Lord, is power. Yours, O Lord, is glory and victory and majesty. They only belong to you. For everything that's in the heavens and everything that's on the earth, God, everything is yours. Yours alone does the kingdom belong to. And you are exalted, Lord, as head over all of it. God, as I look, both riches and honor that people go after and they aspire to, they only come from you because you rule over all. I declare, Father, that in your hand is all power and all might. Only in your hand, God, is the ability to be great. And only in your hand is there ability to receive strength that you're willing to give to all. God, now, as a, as a congregation, we thank you and we praise your glorious name. God, everything comes from you. And God, all that we can give you are simply things that you've already given us. So this morning, Jesus, we embrace our poverty and recognize everything that we have of value is because you've given it. And we live humbly in it this morning. Now, Jesus, empower us to seek first the kingdom as we embrace our poverty. Amen. Invite our ministry teams to come forward uh, this morning as we go into a time of worship. We want to invite you to, 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 one, receive prayer this morning for anything going on in your life. Remember, we're believing for the breakthrough of God's kingdom through healing, through restoration, through salvation. We believe as we pray for people, breakthrough occurs. And so we're going to pray this morning for anything going on in your life. Two, we invite you to take communion this morning. It's just a celebration as we remember the work of God on the cross, the power and might. And as you take communion, it's to remember the Lordship of Jesus. That we could not save ourselves is by grace through faith, not by works. So you can't boast about it. So come and boast in Jesus as you take communion this morning. He responds, the Lord leads. I'll come back in a few minutes and praise out.